This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I keep meaning to ask you this, and I swear I'm not going to derail what we're talking about with it. Did you get through the Murdoch trial? <laughs> the Murdoch trial. It's ironic because I didn't want to watch it, and then I decided I had to. And to answer your question, um, I know the verdict has come out and everything, but no, I have not gotten through it. I'm on, you know, this is in, like, if you're going to watch the whole trial, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's right. been like an eight-hour thing, right? So that's very slow, and it's hard to do once you've um, once the trial has ended. Uh, you can't catch up well before the verdict happens. But I'm on day, I want to say day ten. Yeah, so you're pretty deep into that. It's interesting, right? Yes, it is. It is very interesting. I think, yeah. Yeah, I so I, I'll just say this, and, and we'll come back. We'll talk about the that case at some point. I'm not going to put you on the spot today because I have lots of like weird questions and opinions about the whole thing. Um, and yes, the verdict has already come out, but uh, there are some uses of technology done in a in a really specific like kind of timeline bending way that I've never seen before, where they like count people's steps and they were using the uh, accelerometers on the phone. If I think that's what they're called, or maybe I just made that up, but like where, where the phone turns and it's in portrait versus, um, I think that uh, they referred to that as, uh, the axle maybe. I yeah. The axis, the axle, whatever it was. I, I was, I want to talk about some of that stuff, but I, I'm also, I'm really wanting to transition away from, the Bobby Joe Long case. I had one more piece that I was going to bring up today um, about that. But have you um, have you been watching true crime news? Like, before? I'm always watching true crime news. So there were two cases I wanted to talk about that are, I guess, really old cases. One of them is an Anchorage, Alaska case. Did you see this that the Alaska Public Media put out about this? Like, it's an old uh, sexual assault case up there. It's really old. Right. Yeah, I, I've seen it. The one uh, they've identified uh, they with DNA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a DNA identification. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rhonda McBride wrote about it for KNBA, and it showed up on uh, Alaska Public Media. Uh, I think it showed up first on March 3rd. Um, I read it a little bit after that. I didn't get any kind of, um, uh, like I wasn't on a list to get a press release because it's, it's kind of an odd case. But uh, I wanted to, to mention that here. And so the title that Rhonda put on this was Anchorage Cold Case Solved, DNA Leads to Suspect in 1994 Child Sexual Assault. Um, that's 30 years ago. And I'll tell you what, it made me feel really old to read that, that that was 30 years ago because it doesn't feel that long ago for me. Now, uh, this case was 29 years ago, 29 years ago. Well, I <laughs> almost 30. You're right. Almost 30 years. Say, when you're snaking, you feel old. You need to like take every single year you can get. <laughs> okay. You're, you're right. 
So this is the sexual assault of a five-year-old girl that occurred at an Anchorage park. And uh, according to Rhonda, it had languished unsolved for almost 30 years. She says that. But DNA evidence collected in 1994 has finally led to a suspect. They arrested a gentleman named Lawrence Andrew Lekanoff. Uh, he was indicted last week, the uh, last week of February, uh, by an Anchorage grand jury. He's 52 years old now. He would have been 23 years old when the assault took place. The DOL in Alaska, which is false under the Attorney General's office, had sought the indictment. They say that Anchorage police initially investigate, investigated the case 28 years ago. But it went cold until the evidence was retested in 2020. Uh, the DNA sample was in a collection of sexual assault kits that were tested as part of their capital project. Now, this is a, a state initiative in Alaska to analyze untested uh, rape kits that have been gathered. And they actually went around and they got these kits that were untested from 47 different police departments. And this is one of the cases that um, they're using as sort of a like a, a promo piece for that program saying that it's working. Uh, when the 1994 DNA evidence was tested, it linked the assault to a suspect down in the lower 48. Police then reopened the investigation and the DOL's office of special prosecutions presented the case to a grand jury. Aaron McCarthy is Alaska statewide cold case prosecutor says that the indictment sends an important message that despite the passage of time, Cases like this one are still worthy of attention. A lot of these cases are ones that Alaskan communities haven't forgotten, McCarthy said, and some will never forget, so we can't forget about them either. The girl who was raped in 1994 is now in her early 30s, and while McCarthy can't talk about the woman in this case, she says when a cold case is closed, it usually gives survivors of sexual assault some peace of mind. Often victims will feel like no one cared or no one follow, followed up on their report, and that simply isn't the case. There's a sense of validation as well. Some victims who never knew the identity of their assailant can take comfort in knowing who that person is now and not feeling like they're always looking over their shoulder as well. While the DNA tests connect Lekanoff to the unsolved 1994 case, this is not the first time he's been charged with sexual assault. He was convicted of a similar crime in 1996, which took place at Cheney Lake and involved a six-year-old girl. Uh, Lekanoff is a, is a registered sex offender in Washington State, Montana, and Colorado. He was arrested um, the Monday after or Monday before this article, uh, and he is awaiting extradition to Alaska. I think I read he has now been extradited. Do you know but what he was charged with? He was indicted on sexual abuse of a minor. Okay. Um, it's sexual abuse of a minor. It's uh, got a sentence of 30 years if he's convicted, uh, depending on where he falls in like the sentencing guidelines. Um, what I was thinking, which it, I don't think it'll pertain to this case, but I wonder if DNA technology will cause change to uh, the statute of limitations on different crimes. Oh, I, I just want to clarify. It's actually two counts of sexual abuse of a minor that he's got here. And I was wondering the same thing that you just said. I like, you I, know, it seems like um, it would be only fair, right? Well, a lot of places have begun to, it's not just um, that they've lifted the statute of limitations, like carte blanche, but they have started to adjust statute of limitations in serious felonies. There are many places 
now where felonies don't um, they don't expire, so to speak, because of statute of limitations preventing prosecution. Right, and crimes like murder, um, I think kidnapping, kidnapping, rape, yeah. I think rape. Well, and I'm not sure. Uh, it could be the particular charge, but uh, rape. Sometimes there are statutes of limitations, uh, assault, that kind of thing. And I think what sticks out in my mind is about 15 years. Um, I've heard of cases. Uh, seems like recently, probably not as recently as I think, but um, cases have come up where the statute of limitations has run out on like the principal charge that. Uh, would be appropriate in the case. And, you know, sometimes there's ways around it and sometimes there's not. But I am curious to know if the DNA technology, the way it's uh, being used, and like you said, here with this case, there's been this initiative to clear some backlogs, right? They're yeah. trying to um, anything that they have on hand that they could potentially cross-reference with things that are available. This man was, his DNA was in a sex offender database, yeah. Uh, at least, probably CODIS, I'm not sure. So they're taking the time at this point to get the profiles off of the evidence. And if they already have them, they're taking the time to load them in. So there's, and this is an Alaska initiative, initiative which I think we're going to see that in a lot of different states. And, you know, eventually everybody will be doing it. But so this has been there the whole time, right? Yep. At, and at some point, his DNA would have sh- uh, shown up when it was cross-referenced, it's going to take time to clear the backlogs, which we've talked about. It, I wonder, so there's no reason why uh, this, the little girl that was five years old in 1994, uh, now in 2023, her, the person who abused her and raped her at, you know, that 29 years ago, there's no reason why he shouldn't be brought to justice now. And so in cases where the statute of limitations might have run out, um, I think that we will see, uh, and we already, uh, according to what you said, we already are seeing, uh, I don't know what the word would be there, but I think they're going to be making it more flexible to adapt to that. The way that this is typically gone, for people who don't know exactly how that works, uh, statute of limitations on certain crimes over the years, uh, they would sometimes be as little as five to seven years. And then gradually over time, uh, the more serious crimes got uh, a longer statute of limitations, meaning uh, 11 to 20 years uh, would be a lot of times the statute of limitations in order to pursue uh, some type of prosecution. As it currently stood, I did, I pulled this up. As it currently stood in 2015, they started to do what's known as a DNA exemption to the statute of limitations, meaning, and you and I looked at these cases and, and we've talked about them here and there, but essentially they could indict a John Doe. They could indict a piece of DNA. Right, the and, DNA profile. Right, and then they could just, that, that John Doe or the DNA profiles, John Doe. Whomever identity. matched it, right. Right, so that would basically end up being a, uh, a placeholder for whoever. Right. Because the statute of limitations is on how long they have to file the charges. Correct. It's not how long you have to convict someone. 
right? Right, yeah. That, so it's, it's how long you have to... Most places, it's to file a charge or start the action. Some places, it was from the essentially from the date of uh, indictment. But but either way, that is oh, starting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so in 2022, I had gone through and um, I had pulled together sort of everywhere that you could think of. I was looking at lawsuits. Because uh, lawsuits are typically required to be filed within an even smaller period of time, usually two to three years. Like after, civil lawsuits. Yeah, civil lawsuits. Yeah, the statute um, of limitations is typically about three years on most types of actions. Right. And they have started to sort of change the language in many places. The, the way that that goes now is it can be from the time that the person reports it or realizes it or has some way to pursue it. It is, we've seen that with like the Bill Cosby case. It had, there were quite a few things with that case that were sort of tested. Uh, But it is nice to see these cases going back where they're attempting to clear this backlog and take care of these really old cases. Now, the next case that I put in here for us to chat about, it's actually sort of a dual news update. Although, we talked about part of this already. So what we talked about is there was a, a, a Jane Doe in South Lake Tahoe that uh, it was a pretty sad case. Um, she was unknown in El Dorado County for two thousand um, no, for uh, thirty six years, and in two thousand fifteen they identified her. This is um, the. Do you remember this case at all of her being identified? We talked about that briefly. I think it's actually, um, no, I guess you're right. Um, I think the murder happened more than uh, 36 years ago, but go ahead. Let me run through this. You are correct. It is further back. So it took 36 years to identify her. She was identified in 2015. So now eight years later, or 44 years we have uh, sort of the second step. So with missing persons and unidentified persons, matching those up, that's like the first step, like giving the person their identity back. Whether they're reported missing or not, clearly if they're dead, uh, at some point they became missing. So this was an interesting case. Um, The Mercury News has it, which is like a Bay Area news group set up. Uh, and Los Angeles Time actually briefly covered this, and I think Fox News had it, because at one point this was considered to be an unprovable case. So the first step is giving the unidentified person their name back. The second step is figuring out uh, if, if someone did something to them and identifying that person. So this is the second step in the process here. In 2015, El Dorado County identified an unidentified victim of a crime. So here's the, I'm going to pull the Mercury News article. This is from March 2nd, 2023. And here's what it says. Arrest and murder of tourists who was chased through Lake Tahoe campground. A suspect has been arrested in the 1979 murder of a tourist who was apparently chased through a Tahoe campground before the struggle that killed her. It took, thir- it took authorities 36 years to identify the woman who was beaten and strangled at Sugar Pine Point State Park and eight more to make a DNA match that led to an arrest. 
The long investigation began on September 28, 1979, when three people called a news reporter to say they had found a dead woman at a picnic area in the park on Lake Tahoe's west shore. Police found evidence, including a lost flip-flop, that multiple struggles had occurred as the woman attempted to flee an attacker through the campground. Her identity long remained a mystery. She had apparently been traveling alone, and her vehicle was not found at the campground. Under a grave marker labeled Unknown Female, she was buried in the Tahoma Cemetery. In 2015, when Eldorado County's Cold Case Homicide Unit reopened the case, photographs of the woman's jewelry were sent to newspapers across the country. A pendant of a Hebrew word was recognized by her family in Virginia, and DNA confirmed the connection. The slain woman was Patricia Carnahan, who was 35 years old when she disappeared while on a road trip to California in her red Volkswagen microbus. The family had reported her missing in October of 1979, and the van had been found abandoned in Venice, California. After the identification, Carnahan's body was returned for burial in Virginia. The second connection had to wait. As Washington State Police worked through a backlog of hundreds of sexual assault kits. Last month, in February of 2023, DNA in one of those kits, taken in the investigation of alleged 1994 rape in Spokane, was found to match DNA that had been taken at the Tahoe murder scene in 1979. The 1994 rape was never prosecuted, but the woman, who is now dead, identified her attacker as Harold Carpenter. After the DNA connection, investigators in California learned that Carpenter, who was then 19 years old, had been arrested in Susanville the day after Carnahan's murder on suspicion of driving under the influence, but he had been sent back to Idaho where he was wanted for a burglary. Carpenter had a handful of misdemeanor arrests and convictions in Idaho and Washington in later decades. Now 63, he has been living in a downtown Spokane apartment tower. He's being held without bond in Spokane as El Dorado County seeks extradition. The El Dorado County District Attorney said this is one of the oldest murders in the country to be solved through a review by CODIS, or the Combined DNA Index System. This week in Solano County, authorities announced the arrest of 76-year-old Herman Lee Hobbs in the 1980 murder of a young woman found in a cornfield near Dixon. Hobbs was also identified after a DNA match. The first step being identifying Patricia Carnahan. The second step being arresting Harold Carpenter. This is a huge deal. It is a huge deal. It's interesting the way this case sort of um, unfolded because... So they, they found jewelry. Uh, okay, let me, hold on. So Washington, just like we were talking about with Alaska, Washington also had a... A cold case initiative. Right, but I actually am not sure um, if that, that's not what prompted her to be exhumed. Because um, no. she was exhumed and they saw the, the jewelry, right? Correct. They published the jewelry that she was wearing at the time of her death and... Um, that is what drew attention from her family. Yes, that's what drew attention to her family. But you're, you're actually correct. There's another connection there. They had done a sexual assault kit on her body because she was found right after her murder. Right, but um, so the DNA from that was just for the perp, right? Yeah, it was just for the perpetrator. Isn't that interesting that they didn't have the missing person's DNA? 
it is. They didn't have a way to check for their DNA. Anyways, they didn't. They didn't specify like we do or don't have her DNA. Um, they did, but because they, like you said, because they, I was trying to think of how that would go down. I think it's because they exhumed her. I assume they had to get the DNA. Yeah, they, they had to get her DNA. I think the sexual assault kit there. Okay, let's think about this for a second. If this is 1979 and they're taking a sexual assault kit, it's more from the idea of proving she was raped and seeing if they can get a blood type. I've never been able to wrap my mind around like. Why? I mean, I'm not saying it, it, it's a good thing that they did it. I'm not saying it's bad, but like, I how do they even have this evidence, right? Well, it, they they have this evidence because they were building a like a rape murder case, and like they wanted like it would have been weird back then. Like, is he a secretor? Is he not a secretor? Is he type A blood? Is he type O blood? You know, I, that's what they would be looking for. And I guess at the time that they were collecting this evidence, they didn't actually know that she was going to remain unidentified for all these years, right? Right. They had no idea. And so her family, they saw the jewelry. Uh, it was then further confirmed with um, a DNA comparison uh, once the family came forward. I don't really know why she was exhumed, but I assume because they were like, oh, we've got this unidentified person, uh, this unidentified female buried here. We don't have record of where her DNA is. Let's get it, Right. Yeah, um, they they put a. I'm a. You mind if I read you a passage? Because I think you'll find this interesting. Sure. So the L.A. Times did a little bit uh, of digging here, and here's what they said: uh, Carpers. This is from an article March second uh, by a guy named Noah Goldberg. Carpenter's arrest Wednesday by the El Dorado County District Attorney in the 1979 killing was the product of investigative genetic genealogy with law enforcement in Washington state matching his DNA from a rape kit in a separate crime he allegedly committed to the DNA recovered from Carnahan's murder scene. The district attorney there, Vern Pearson, says DNA and genetic genealogy is a big deal. Carpenter, 63, had been accused in 1994 of raping a woman, though charges were never filed. Police took DNA from Carpenter but it was never tested. So they had never even tested his DNA. Um, so he wasn't charged in that. So his DNA sat in a warehouse for 30 years. This is from the same guy, Vern Pearson. Without the connection of the two cases, prosecutors in California were left trying to match DNA taken from the unidentified woman's body and crime scene to family tree databases such as 23andMe. So this is Carpenter's DNA. They get close to solving the case in 2020, and they interview Carpenter's uncle, whose DNA closely matched the DNA found at the crime scene, but the case remains cold. All right, and, so and, that profile would have been, um, it could have been upwards of like 25% match, right? Yeah, because it's um, an uncle. Right, if it's his, uh, you know, mother or father's sibling, because you get 50% of your DNA from your parents, from each parent. And they, in turn, of course, would have gotten 50% of their DNA from their parents, right? Yeah. And so um, it would have been a pretty close match, but uh, I don't know what they were working with exactly. And I, I did see that about his, um, and that is really interesting to me, um, that it. I, I'm not sure um, how many people uh, were talking about there once they got to the uncle, right? I don't yeah. know how many um, siblings he has, how many cousins he has, but um, from a from the standpoint of what I know about DNA, 
which, you know, it's not a whole lot, but I know a little bit. Um, beyond, uh, and I don't even know, hmm, I don't even know what investigators would know about that and what uh, presents on 23andMe with a match. But beyond the relationship, without further information, like a sample from each person, uh, it would be really hard to make any sort of distinction between him, any of his siblings, uh, any of his male siblings, and any of his male cousins. Well, I can answer some of this. <laughs> That's why I was using this uh, particular piece, because I thought you'd dig some of what they, they put together. So this year, the sexual assault kit from the 94 case, it gets tested as part of the Washington State Attorney General's offices. So this is the same thing they were doing up in Anchorage. Sexual Assault Kit Initiative. So that began in 2017. The state receives a $3 million federal grant to try and eliminate the backlog. They're doing the same thing Alaska was doing. Now, prosecutors in California have not charged Carpenter with sexually assaulting Carnahan, but they did have that sexual assault kit we talked about, and that provided them with his DNA. The that DNA was from, from the- a different case, right? Uh, so what they did first is they match... Okay, they match... The DNA from the 94 rape kit to this to Carnahan's rape kit. Does that make sense? Those two things match first. You know what's weird? Go ahead. I don't even know if I should even say this. So, okay, he was accused of raping a woman in 1994. Right. Um, the charges were never filed, but police had the DNA. And right. They had both sets of DNA. That's the thing that you need to remember. So they took his DNA. No, I understand that. I I get what's happening here. My problem with that is, like, I don't know that they were allowed to test that DNA. Well, that's the – see? This is where I'm headed because I have questions. All right. So the prosecutors – allowed to test it, like, under the Fourth Amendment. I – I am with you that I am headed like I'm not headed to an answer. I'm headed to more questions. So the DNA from the Washington case gets uploaded into CODIS. That means the rape kit taken from the victim. It gets bumped up into CODIS. That then links to what California did by putting that sexual assault kit from Carnahan's case where she's the victim Okay, so the 1994 case matched... The 1979 case. The 1979 case. And so, okay, though prosecutors in California didn't charge him... with a sex, They haven't charged him with Carnahan's murder yet. Okay, so, but the, ca- so the case from the victim in 19... So they didn't put his DNA in there. They took the victim's DNA and put it into CODIS as a sexual assault victim case, right? Correct. And then it matched the unidentified female's sexual assault kit from 1979, Carnahan. Correct. Right? Um, and so then I assume they went back and they looked at that 1994 um, sexual assault and they had uh, him as a suspect, right? Yeah, I'm thinking they probably yeah. had filed a warrant or gotten a consent form signed and they collected his DNA. Right, but the the point was that it okay, I see it's fine um as far as the fourth amendment goes because it was evidence collected from the victim, not his DNA directly. No, I, I well, that's what the match the codis match is made off of that, correct? 
Right, and that's enough to get a warrant for his DNA. Right, but they if they if they just already had his untested DNA, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, that like, that wouldn't have passed muster. Not, uh, I don't think they could have uploaded it into CODIS. They shouldn't have, um, but they could have compared it to the 1994 crime scene. That's probably what they got it for. See, I just don't know. I, I, that is sticky to me, but it does sound like they, now I just want to make the distinction that I have absolutely no problem with anybody's DNA that's found in a way that makes them the perpetrator being charged with a crime at any point in time. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but it needs to be addressed and you know, who gets to decide what the rules are? Well, out in this particular case, our constitution decides that, right. Right. Um, because a search and seizure, which is what a DNA match ultimately is, it falls under the fourth amendment. Right. And it has yeah. to be reasonable. Now, if you leave your, DNA behind at a crime scene in a sexual assault, uh, you have no right to uh, privacy, right? You have given up that right when you left your DNA behind, which has been one of my like sort of pivotal points of this DNA avalanche is like how many guys did that and now they're getting caught, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I would argue that it's my opinion that them when they took his DNA for comparison but it wasn't compared at the time of the crime, which makes, I mean, 1994, they took his DNA, really? That's what they said. They said they had his un, they had his uncompared DNA in here, according to the Los Angeles Times. Right. And so uh, a suspect's DNA in a sexual assault uh, case. Now, this is a reporter's interpretation of the information they had. There could be more to it, but like that would not go into CODIS. Okay. The suspects did not go in there. It was the untested DNA. Like it was from her sexual right. assault kit. Right. Right. And so that went in and then the uh, sexual assault kit of the victim from 1979. Um, Car I keep messing her name up. Carmen. <laughs> um, Carnahan. Yeah. Okay. And, and his name is Carpenter, right? Correct. So Carpenter and Carnahan. Um, so Carnahan um, was also the victim of a crime. She was murdered and they collected sexual assault kit evidence. And so when both of those were put in to CODIS, they matched. And those are, that's a perfectly acceptable situation under the fourth amendment, because you're talking about uh, crime scene evidence left behind by a potential, Possible perpetrator, right? Yes. Say that three times fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so so there's no Fourth Amendment violation there. Um, it looks like as they were getting the backlog cleared, they actually came upon... So they've got this profile, but they don't have anybody that matches it, right? So they use a commercial database. That's where they get to the uncle, right? Right. Okay, so they, they've got a profile that's unnamed... And I feel like there might be some misunderstanding here because um, once they got there, it's not a far leap if he was a suspect in the 1994 case to begin with, right? Right. Uh, because they got to Carpenter's uncle. That's also a very good illustration of how it isn't just you. Like, it's not just your DNA. Um, just because you don't do your DNA doesn't mean you won't be found. It's your whole family. <laughs> 
um, anybody, now this is a really direct link. In fact, um, unless there's just a whole bunch of them, like a whole bunch of, if he has a whole bunch of male siblings and cousins, I could see where it might not be so clear. But to me, this would be like a straight arrow <laughs> to him, right? Well, I think I think if you're looking at a 1975 rape, strangulation, murder versus a 1994 rape where the victim lived, it could make you wonder. Uh, no. Not the DNA matching wouldn't make me wonder. No, I'm saying like it. It may not make it, like if you've got a big field in front of you of people, like you said, a lot of you said a lot of cousins and siblings, people who share DNA. I'm saying it could make you wonder if like which direction to go. Which part? So if oh, you the, have the DNA have, matching the uncle, if you have fifty possible suspects. And 49 of them are in the state that you're looking in. And this guy lives in a different state. Like the DNA matching back to the direction of the uncle. And you see all these other people like it doesn't this sounds terrible, but it doesn't sound that far fetched that you could have two people, particularly if the generations are staggered who are both involved in these types of crimes. And maybe one's a rapist and one's a rapist murderer. If you've got 50 or 100 suspects or whatever. Um, it, that's it, possible, but uh, the match in CODIS would have been uh, to the exclusion of all others. Yeah, no, I agree with that part. So so it wouldn't have been like a split there. But yeah, I mean, I understand. I understand that it, this is an evolution. I got you. My question to you is, um, let's say it, we don't get a lot of details on these sexual assault kits and like where the DNA was found. But what if that DNA was found under a nail on her left hand? Okay. I'm not taking this bait right now. I will take this bait at a later date. Like yeah, DNA. I, that, I just want you to think about it. No, I'm with you. Like the sexual assault kit includes fingernail clipping. I knew so that. we're going to have to go there. At, you know, like, That's at, why I, I they, so a sexual assault kit is swabs from specific areas and they clip the fingernails off. Right. Correct. Um, and they test underneath. And so I'm just curious because what has sort of come down. Now this guy's alive. Carpenter is alive, right? Yes. Okay. And so what has come down as like, okay, so this DNA matched this 1994 rape case and now it matches um, this 1979 murder case from her sexual assault kit. And has he been taken into custody? I'm sure they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He's in Spokane, Washington. He's at the jail. Um, He's going to be extradited to California. Right. And so we don't know, like, if there's corroborating evidence that's other than the DNA, right? In fact, we hardly it's ever know. Believes. Yeah. Um, we don't know if, like, they just went and picked him up or, like, did they confront him? Like, we don't know, right? We just know that CODIS led to this arrest. And um, a concern of ours has been... Uh, as and we've talked about it a lot on the show um, about how you know with it, I think we talked about it from the perspective of more of the evolution of touch DNA like yeah. at what point in time like does it become like everybody's a suspect right because if you've ever been at the crime scene your DNA is going to be there right and I've always said 
Well, it's going to have to be pertinent DNA, right? It's going to have to come from a place that would make sense that a perpetrator left it there. And one of my go-tos has been under fingernails. And then I've had it blow up in my face. Well, well so I am dealing with, <laughs> and this isn't being published yet, so I can't use it yet. But I'll say this. I, uh, I was talking to a cold case investigator and like they're retired. They pick up stuff on the side. Um, they're actually in Washington state. And I was just having one of those com- what if conversations. Cause I had tracked down this, you know, I, have you ever seen CODIS letters? Like, have you seen what one of the letters looks like? I actually don't know. I, I, not that I recall now. Okay, so I had been foying a possible future thing like for later in the year for us, and I got some stuff back uh, that was sort of unusable, unusable as far as the story goes. Uh, and I, I asked like some pointed questions of one end of the case, and she was like, oh, you weren't supposed to get those. And so I sent them over, um, and I guess she talked to a supervisor, and the supervisor messaged me, but... The gist of it is there's a Michigan case that matches a Washington case. They're years apart, like 20 years apart. Um, They both got CODIS hits at the same time. Turns out they are from an EMT who refuses to wear gloves or something. I don't know. But somehow he's in CODIS. And now the question, like, so this case is not, published in any way there's no names attached to it in any way i'm just talking about the generalities of it he worked in washington at the time of the first case he worked in michigan at the time of the second case he was actually retiring is he a suspect in your mind um hmm. I, I would just need more information well he's i mean so I can tell you this, he, he's not an actual suspect. I was going to say probably not. If he had like a reason to be around them, like, so he, you're saying he worked at the crime scene, right? He legitimately. So uh, if, if I remember correctly at one scene, he's actually a paramedic and the victim is alive. His DNA is there. The second scene uh, much later, he was just working as a coroner transport. And his, he ends up in the mix. Um, I don't know if they're all fingernail clippings or what they were, but they have determined that like he was called to the scene with other people. Uh, and with the, in the case of the woman that was alive, it was impossible for him to have been there. I would say that, uh, wait, the case of the woman was alive. It was impossible for him to have been there during the crime. Right. It was impossible for him to have been there prior to the crime. Right. But he showed up on scene and did his job. And he did his job and his, somehow his DNA is in the fingernail clippings from the crime scene. I would say no then. Um, I would also say that any sort of uh, feasible resolution is acceptable uh, to me. As far as maintain, like, because in that case it would have been, oh, there's, it, there's unidentified male DNA at the time, but we've since linked it, and it it is apparent that it's one of the first responders' DNA, right? Yeah. Okay, that's a that's resolution right there. Okay, yeah. I wouldn't find um, so 
and that at that point there it isn't unidentified DNA, right? It's accounted for DNA. Yeah, it's no longer an unknown male profile. Right. And so to me, no, he's not a suspect. I mean, unless there's something else that, you know, investigators would certainly see and say, well, you know, does that put him in a different category? No, they're, they're messing with the victim. They, you know, it happens, right? It shouldn't, it, they hope it doesn't, they try for it not to, but I would say like any of the first responders, in fact, that's the very first thing I would say is like, they would have to be ruled out, right? Yeah. And I think that's done a little better now. I just think it, um, is it? well, it's, it's getting to the point that it's done a little better now. The, the cases that this was like relevant to, it was, it was really odd, like to, to look at how that could happen and it's older, but I do think like, I think that DNA fingerprints it, in most cases, like shoe uh, prints or at least the shoe types are taken at crime scenes so that like they have comparisons of the people who were the first responders on scene and they know what they can rule out and see what's left. It's sort of like you described, like you're going through a pile and you go like, that's that guy. That's got all these people have reason to be it's here except for this sort one. of resolution to it. Yeah. Just whatever it is. And but, it's not my call, but when you don't have like the whole court case laid out in front of you, right? Like, cause we have a lot of people that, they're identified as the you know most likely perpetrator of an event uh, through DNA of a cold case, and they're dead. So, like, this trial's not going to happen, right? Yeah, and, okay, so when it comes to this specific case, this uh, uh, meaning Harold Carpenter's potential or alleged uh, rape and murder of Patricia Carnahan, this was once described as an unsolvable case. And I noticed that a couple of the news outlets ran with that because I remember reading about it and it was an unprovable case. So evidence has gotten to the point where that is no longer the case. There's one more element about this case I want to ask you about, which I found fascinating. The symbol around her neck was the Hebrew symbol for life. I don't know if you've ever um, seen this. If you Google see H-A-I, or hey, uh, it's the uh, it's two letters of the Hebrew alphabet that are making up like uh, the symbol for life or living. Okay. Um, so when this got, so this, this woman went unidentified for a very long time, like from 1979 to 2015. What happens is they wrote this up. Do you see the symbol for hey? Yes. Okay. So they wrote this up that she had a an emblem of a deer on a necklace around her neck. And they buried her with it. This is her jewelry. Right. So when they, in 2015, on the first cold case project, they realized that this was not a deer. This was two Hebrew letters. So it was an amulet, basically, around her neck with two letters on it. And so they took this photo and they put it into a Jewish newspaper. That's how she gets identified. Because her daughter recognized it. Correct. And I was just wondering what you thought of, like, 
and and I think about this all the time, and you and I get into these long debates all the time where we'll come across like recognizable but unidentified people, and we'll get deep in the weeds over jewelry. We've done it over rings. We've done it over inscriptions that can barely be read. I think we've done it over tattoos a couple of times where we wonder if they might mean something other than what was put into a database to identify it. And that- right, like the deer. Yeah, I see what you're saying. That's exactly um, what, yeah, I agree. That's what some of my points have been. It's it's somebody looking at it one way and somebody else looking at it another, right? Yeah. Because my understanding is that it was a picture of the actual piece of jewelry that ended up being identified. Yeah, yeah. So once once they identified that it was probably not a deer, someone said, and I don't know who it is, it doesn't say who or or where, uh, there was this guy assigned to the homicide unit, his name was um, John Gaines, so he's a cold case investigator who he started working with El Dorado County's cold case homicide unit. And he just went through and was like looking through the seventies, the eighties and the nineties. And they had brought up, uh, uh, Gaines had brought it up with a forensic anthropologist when they were digging up the Potter's field. Like that's all the unidentified people. Um, he noticed that they had called it, uh, a deer and in fact, he recognized it as a Jewish symbol. So he had them publish it in the Jewish News of Northern California in a 2014 article, the pictures of her jewelry. And he put it all in there. Um, and and if you, have you seen the photo? I don't I can, know that I, can I have. Sh- yeah, I can show it to you. Um, he put it all in there. Uh, I, this, I, this is from I, the article. I um, So from all the information about uh, that particular case, I would have to see... But for, I think it was the necklace. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the necklace is what was uh, recognized. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you look at the necklace in the picture I just sent you, do you see how they thought it was a deer? When it, yeah, if you, like, I see if it. You, if you flip it over, it's the symbol for living. Right, right, right. And somebody was able to say that. But ultimately, they didn't even have to say it. They just needed to get it to the right people, which would have been, uh, it was in, published in a Jewish newsletter, right? Yeah. newspaper and so from that they were like oh and you know obviously if your mom's been missing for as long as she's been missing right uh 29 years yeah actually i don't know when she left but like she was murdered 29 years ago so it would have to be longer than that probably right yeah they had found her vehicle um abandoned and um i don't know if she was reported as a missing person i have no idea but Having come across this in a newspaper and saying, huh, that looks like my mom's, right? Yeah. Um, You know, but for that recognition, I don't know that, I mean, I feel like she would still be unidentified. I think the potential is there. We don't necessarily know. I mean, these guys that started working on this might have taken this step. I I think they really pulled her up. And when they took photos of her, of her jewelry, I think they also were looking for DNA, but the jewelry just made sense to photograph because they clearly pulled off all of her rings and two necklaces and her watch and they photographed it. Uh, I say clearly, I mean, they did that because the, um, the, the photo exists in the newsletter. Um, right. And it was done later. Oh, wow. The, the newsletter article, the very last line says, uh, the, 
investigator John Gaines said Elvis used to wear the same necklace, and I recognized it from him. Oh, so that's why. So that's why he recognized the necklace. I'm so glad that happened, but I wonder all the time I look at stuff and I go, is this something, you know, is this D actually a P or a B? It's honestly, um, it's amazing that the daughter was able to recognize it. Yeah. Um, Now, granted, after it came up, there was, uh, like the case had, the missing person case of her mom had things that could, Lynn to her being this unidentified body, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they were able to do a DNA comparison at that point. I don't know if they had the DNA on file or not, but they were able to um, at least go back and get it if they didn't have it. And so she was identified, but it was the necklace that did it. And that, like, all that kind of stuff is, like, so... I mean, I, I don't want to say it freaks me out, but like it's just so crazy that that's what did it, right? It's random chance. It really is, and you know, without if you just saw that she was wearing a deer necklace, you're not probably going to make that connection. No, I don't think that you would. Um, I have so I have one more piece uh, to go over today. This is actually related to uh, the Bobby Joe or, or Robert Long case. I go digging. I don't know if you do this. This is another like newsletter type thing. I dig like pretty deep into different newsletters and stuff. Um, I like the archives uh, for law enforcement bulletins and for national intelligence bulletins. Do you ever look at those? Only when I want a good laugh. <laughs> they're, they're, it's pretty wild to see like the bonkers amount of information that's in them, but also like how different some things would be today. Well, I I always try to say that. Um, I laugh at it because, like, it's funny because I'm reading it today, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have the benefit of looking, like, of, right. And so I feel like they were very well-intentioned at the time. But it's still funny to read it uh, from today's perspective, I think. The, what we're talking about today, just to close that case out and sort of transition into what we're doing next, because I mentioned this several times, and it has kind of a wealth of information in here. If you're ever interested in these, you can get them off. I think these are still on the FBI website. They, If not, they would definitely be in the FBI vault. What it's called is, oh man, I forgot. What, what it's the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin. Yeah, okay. That's literally the name of it. And we're um, reading uh, from December 1987. This is, a, this is a weird article called The Bobby Joe Long Serial Murder Case, A Study in Cooperation. Uh, and this is the conclusion. There were other like parts of this. I, I only wanted to focus on this because they sort of like dumped all the information into this part so that people could understand it. Uh, it's written by Captain Gary Terry, who was the Hillsborough County uh, Sheriff's Office captain in Tampa, Florida, back in 1987. And Special Agent Michael Malone, who works with the Hairs and Fiber Unit um, with the FBI labs in D.C. And I don't know what people know about Hair and Fiber, and at some point I will, like, like dedicate an episode to talking about debunked science. And that's all I'll say about it for here. But again, this is December 1987. And this is talking about when they say cooperation, it's not Bobby Joe Long's cooperation. It's the cooperation of uh, local, state, and federal agencies. 
the article starts out on November 3rd, 1984, a young girl named Lisa McVeigh was leaving a donut shop in Northern Tampa when she was abducted. The offender took her to an unknown apartment and sexually assaulted her for 26 hours before releasing her. The HCSO urged the Tampa Police Department to send their rape evidence to the FBI laboratory. And on November 13, 1984, the FBI laboratory called with the biggest break yet in the serial murder case. They found the same red fibers on McVeigh's clothes as had been found on the homicide victims. After the rape case had been linked to the murders, a task force was formed the next day consisting of the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, the Tampa Police Department, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the Pasco County Sheriff's Office, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The rape victim, McVeigh, was extensively interviewed and recalled that after leaving the apartment where she was held, the suspect stopped at a 24-hour teller machine to withdraw some money at approximately 3 a.m. She described the suspect's vehicle as being red with a red interior and red carpet with the word Magnum on the dash. En route to the release site, the victim recalled peeking out from under the blindfold and seeing a Howard Johnson's motel as they drove up on the interstate. At this time, there were approximately 30 officers assigned to this task force. They immediately flooded the North Tampa area, searching for the apartment and vehicle. Only a 1978 Dodge Magnum has the word Magnum on the dash. A task force member was flown to the state capitol and returned with a list of every Dodge Magnum registered in Hillsborough County. An examination of the computer printout of these registrations revealed Robert Joe Long's name as a listed owner of a Dodge Magnum. Each team of detectives was assigned certain areas to search, and as one team drove to the area, they noticed a red Dodge Magnum driving down Nebraska Avenue in North Tampa. The vehicle was stopped, and the driver was told that they were looking for a robbery suspect. The, the driver was identified as Robert Joe Long. He was photographed, and a field interrogation report was written. During the same time period, bank records for all bank machines in North Tampa were being subpoenaed. These bank records reveal that Robert Long had used a 24-hour teller machine close to the apartment at approximately 3 o'clock on the morning the rape victim was released. The rape victim identified Long as her assailant from a photo selection. Based on McVeigh's statements, both an arrest warrant and a search warrant were drawn up and approved by a circuit court judge. Robert Long was located at his apartment approximately two hours after being stopped by the task force members. They began a 24-hour surveillance of Long, also using aircraft to minimize the chances that Long would spot the surveillance teams. The task force then consulted the Behavioral Science Unit at the FBI Academy for guidelines to use when interviewing the suspect. A special agent from the FBI lab in Washington was flown to Tampa for an immediate comparison of fibers from the suspect's apartment and vehicle and to assist in the crime scene searches. An aircraft was standing by so that after the arrest, this agent could be flown immediately to the closest FDLE laboratory, which had the special microscope required for comparison of fiber samples. The following teams were organized from the task force. One, an arrest team selected to physically arrest Long. Two of these officers were selected to interview Long at the office after the arrest. Two, a search and seizure team for the vehicle three, a search team for the residents, and four, a neighborhood survey team to interview Long's neighbors in his apartment complex after the arrest and before any information would be released to the media. 
After all task force teams were at their assigned locations, the signal to effect the arrest was given. By this time, Long was in a movie theater. As Long walked out of the theater, he was arrested. This arrest occurred only 36 hours after the task force had been formed. Long was returned to his apartment, where approximately 10 to 15 detectives were waiting. In this jurisdiction, Hillsborough County, it is preferred to serve a search warrant while the owner of the property is there to witness the search. In this case, an embarrassed Long refused to exit the police vehicle and witness the search. Long was then taken to Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office Operations Center for interrogation. The interview was begun after the interviewing officers had consulted with the FBI agent present who had prepared the criminal personality profile. The agent advised that this suspect would most likely cooperate if the officers displayed both their authority and a thorough knowledge of the case. The officers opened the interview by carefully talking only about the McVeigh rape and abduction until the suspect confessed to the McVeigh case. Then, the detectives began going into the other homicide cases. Long denied any involvement in the homicides initially. Meanwhile, the suspect's vehicle had been brought to the sheriff's office where it was being searched. The vehicle was found to have the Vogue tire and the Goodyear Viva tire, all with the white wall inverted and in the exact location on the vehicle as had been suspected. This is stuff they talked about in the previous article when they were discussing tire tracks and fibers found at the crime scene, by the way. The FBI fiber expert was immediately flown with this sample and previous fiber samples to the FDLE lab in Sanford, Florida, which had a comparison microscope. A short time later, the agent telephoned the HCSO, confirming that the fibers from Long's vehicle matched the red carpet fibers found previously on the victims. Long continued to to deny committing the murders until the fibers were matched. The interviewing detectives then explained the physical evidence to the suspect. They also explained the significance of the matched fibers and what other comparisons would be done, i.e. hair, blood, etc. At this time, the suspect confessed. The suspect gave a brief description of each homicide. He admitted killing Loudenbach, victim number three, and using her money card. In each case, Long had talked the victims into his vehicle, immediately gaining control of them with a knife and a gun. He then bound them and took them to various areas where he sexually assaulted and then murdered them. The suspect drew a map showing where he had placed victim number nine. This victim had been abducted from the city of Tampa during an earlier part of the investigation, and the Tampa Police Department had informed the HCSO of this fact. They believed she fit the victim profile, but she remained missing until Long told them where to find the body. Eventually, a total of 10 homicides, which had occurred in and around the Tampa Bay area over a period of approximately eight months, were attributed to Long. The victims ranged from 18 to 26 years, uh, to 28 years in age. The majority of the victims were prostitutes. Their word, not mine. Most victims were strangled and or asphyxiated. However, one was shot and one died of its cut throat. Several weeks after the arrest of Long, a conference was held at the HCSO, attended by law enforcement agencies from throughout the state of Florida. The entire case was presented, and as a result, numerous rapes were cleared in the Miami area. I want to pause there for a second. Did you think anything about that? Yes. What do you think happened there? So I kind of write a fence here because on one hand, I think that that could very easily be a situation where they 
lumped a bunch of cases together and we're seeking a uh, closure. Yeah, seeking to close the cases, right? Yeah. Okay. On the other hand, I'm like, well, there is information that he gives for some of them. Yep. And uh, if he really gave them the information, it seems unlikely that he wouldn't have been at least involved, right? Because um, how would he have the information? I don't make it a practice to uh, specifically try to undermine cases that are done. Like, because he was put to death in 2019, right? Yeah. But I will tell you, the very first thing I thought of was, it's really odd that um, somebody that was caught because he let his victim go was then had all these murders under his belt. Yeah. So this is where it gets weird. I think if this case happened in 2023, there might be different results. Well, there would be DNA. There would be DNA. There would be a different type of investigation as well because you would have a lot more electronic materials but i, I want to restate like what we were talking about there several weeks after the arrest of long a conference was held at the hillsborough county sheriff's office who was writing this attended by law enforcement agencies from throughout the state of florida the entire case was presented and as a result numerous rapes were cleared in the miami area now, the public defender's office had attempted to obtain an injunction, injunction to prevent dissemination of information about the long cases, but this obstacle was overcome by having this conference limited to law enforcement personnel only, meaning no press. So this case is a classic example of the success that can be achieved when law enforcement agencies cooperate. The following are critical areas of the investigation. So... They, they give this long breakdown in a bunch of diagrams talking about news media, evidence collection and control, laboratory services and task force, as well as agency commitment. And they blow a lot of smoke up a lot of butts, which is fine. That's what they want to do. It is the FBI um, bulletin, right? Fair it's the FBI bulletin with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office and the FBI are writing it together. Well, I'm just saying like the people who are reading this um, are people that uh, would expect and accept this type of smoke blowing, right? Correct. It's not like it's like a, you know, press conference for the whole world. No, I, I agree. They did include one figure on here. I wanted to talk about, I don't have a lot more on this case. I just wanted to. Well, talk what did about you think this. about it? I you think me. I, I think when they do this, I wonder how much of it's true because they attribute a lot of rapes to him in a short period of time where he was also committing murder. I have never seen the list of rapes. I it can't find it. It doesn't exist on paper. They said they closed around 50 sexual assault cases. I, I want to um, read the weird ass FBI criminal personality profile they put in here. Did you see this? I did. So what they're saying, they said ahead of time, what they gave the task force was that long would be a Caucasian male, mid twenties. And his personality type would be a macho image 
who is assaultive with weaker individuals. I think he should go by each one, like age, what they said and what he is. Okay. So race, they said he would be Caucasian and male. That's his race and his gender. He is Caucasian and male. They said he would be in his mid twenties. He was 31. They said his personality would be a macho image, assaultive, with a weaker individual. So basically someone who looked down on others. And if you've heard us talk about the triad by now, what we're talking about is how he, he would kind of beat up on, on smaller people, weaker people, younger people, anyone he viewed as inferior. Now that was what they said his personality type would be like. But then they put that on, he was on probation for assault. He lifted weights and he transferred from the sheriff's office to the state pen for his personality. I don't know what any of that means. It makes no sense. For employment, they said that he would have difficulty holding jobs. And that's the that's what they expected in the profile. And then what they said it actually was. Um, just a second. Uh, they were trying to uh, qualify the macho part in the early Yeah, days. yeah. No, I understand that. Yeah, okay. So they said that he was fired from his previous job and he was currently unemployed, which he was sort of constantly rotating between jobs. His marital status was that he was probably divorced. And in actuality, he was divorced. They said that his vehicle would be a flashy car. Uh, and he did have a 1978 Red Dodge Magnum. They said that he would be likely to carry weapons. And he did have knives and guns. Of his crimes, they said his personality when committing his crimes, would he be inclined to mentally and physically taunt and torture the victims? Um, And uh, so in actuality, they said that he tied a, quote, leash to some victims. Um, His victim type would be randomly selected, susceptible to approach. And they don't say a thing about that. Well, I think it speaks for itself. And then the geographic uh, parts of the profile, they state he would confine activity to a given geographic region. And then they state that he was confining it in actuality to Tampa Bay at his time. Right. And so I don't... 200 miles away from Miami. Oh, what does that mean? Well, they said that he... Okay, so they clear all these Miami cases. He's confining himself to a specific geographic reason that includes 200 miles away. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I see what you're saying. That you're talking about the rapes, that, the unknown rapes that were cleared. Correct. Okay, yeah. I, that is uh, mind-boggling to me. I, I don't know how many rapes they cleared. Um, I also don't know... I've done a little research on it and I have my thoughts, but not really enough to kind of bolster them like with any sort of confidence, but serial killers typically don't have a whole lot of sexual assaults that don't end in death. Here's what's weird about this guy. I agree with that statement, but and I also agree this guy did it. But he's almost not a serial killer. 
Well, we don't know. Like, okay, so I was so talking about the sexual assaults is one thing. Okay, that's victims that were raped but right. lived. Okay, right. Talking about these this uh, the serial murders, which um, there were, I believe, nine victims died, and the last victim, uh, Lisa McVeigh. She lived, she was 17 years old. I have absolutely no question that everything she said happened to her happened to her. And in my mind, (laughs) that is enough. The confidence I have in the case that she had against him. And uh, the only reason he was caught was because of her diligence and paying attention to what was happening to her and everything. Uh, it was all her, right? And to me, her case alone, and the fact that she said it happened the way it happened, and she had the evidence, uh, she was able to lead police to this, to where it happened and everything, how that kind of ended. It's enough that I'm okay with the fact that he was found guilty of all these murders and put to death. Okay. However, I have found certain things in each of the case, the murder cases that he's, he was, uh, you know, that he was, he's been attributed to. And has he been found guilty of all of them? Yeah, pretty much. He gets found guilty of all of them. I just, I want to point out there's two survivors with Lisa McVeigh and there's another survivor. There are 10 murder victims. Because I don't know how I said that earlier, and I may have like thrown things off. I just want to make sure I say that he was convicted on. I want to say he's convicted on all of them, or some of them are sort of consolidated. According to this article from the FBI, they say that uh, the in the study and cooperation, they say that he is uh, essentially. Guilty of all of them. There's um, 11 victims. 12. But two of them there's survive. A, okay, but there's 11 on the chart here. Okay, hold on a second. Let me go back. Is Linda and Lisa on there? No. It's Lana Long, Michelle Sims, Elizabeth Loudenbach, Chanel Williams, Karen Dinsfriend. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, Kimberly Hops. Uh, oh wait, she is on there. I'm sorry. I apologize. She's listed as a juvenile female, um, but I don't see the other survivor. I don't want to name her because she doesn't appear in the media for the most part. Hold on, I'm pulling back up what we were looking at. Uh, so Does Lena, she have Michelle, the Jaguar. No, it's not her. It's, okay. the, it's the Port Ritchie rape. She decided not to be a part of what was going on. I, I just never. I I I remember us talking about that, and Lisa sticks out in my mind. Uh, she is a juvenile female, but she has spoken. I've actually heard her speak about this. So, oh yeah, uh, she, she has it now. She at the time she was she's, shielded. She's like I probably. She's she's an adult now, <laughs> for sure. She was almost oh, yeah, an yeah, adult yeah. then, but um, and so she's spoken out and. Um, I found um, some issues with, for example, okay, so what are we at? Ten homicides? 
Yes, he's got 10 homicides. 10, hom- ten homicides. They were in a, um, the period of time was like eight months, right? The victims were ranged from the juvenile all the way up to like 28 years old, but those are all young uh, adults, right? To me, yep. except for the juvenile, uh, that, but she was the survivor, the one, one of the survivors. And, um, the majority of the victims have some sort of association with, um, being some type of what we would now consider to be a sex worker. And the victims were strangled or, and, and, or asphyxiated. Yep. But one of them was shot and one of them had their throat slit. Correct. The victim that was shot, who, let's see, her name was um, Chanel Williams. I had a really hard time with that case uh, in particular because it was so different, right? Yeah, so was Michelle Sims. They were very different from the mainstream narrative. To me, it didn't fit, and it would. I think I said on an earlier show, it would have thrown me off. I wouldn't have made that connection. Um, and so, if you go, they linked uh, fibers from. I think that's from his car. They they link fibers from his car, and then fibers. They're from the red carpet fibers from the car floor and the seats. So there's okay. carpet fibers and upholstery fibers that they're winging in these cases. And so those were on her, right? Correct. And then on the victim, Chanel Williams, um, they found what they compared as Bobby Joe Long's pubic hair on her sweater. Yes. Okay. There's none of Chanel's hair in uh, Bobby Joe Long's car. Come on. Correct. Okay. And I don't know if you noticed this or not, but some of the semen was different. Did you see this? Yes, that's what I was going to say. They contradicted themselves, and I so okay. The reason I brought up this old FBI letter, okay, so Bobby Joe Long probably killed the bulk of these people. So I'm not defending him. I don't want people to think I'm his fanboy or I'm defending him. That's why I prefaced it with, I absolutely believe um, Lisa McVeigh's account of what happened to her. And he got what he deserved. Justice was served in her case. Correct. In my opinion. But, and so that's why I prefaced with that because it almost has to be that, well, for one thing, a lot of these victims, it's not entirely obvious that they were raped. Yeah, some of these victims, they don't even know the cause of death. Like, we we put a cause of death out there that was posited by all of that information that I had put together about this case, like in hindsight. But in this 1987 law enforcement bulletin, they contradict some of the mainstream sources and they contradict they contradict some of the law enforcement sources. So I got the feeling that maybe this guy was a spree killer. He is probably the serial killer that we think he is. But I do want to point out that this presentation that the FBI gives and documents in their own newsletter contradicts the story they're telling within it in several ways. And today these cases would not stand up as well as they might have then or might have, if they did back then, they wouldn't stand up like that today. They published this in the law enforcement bulletin. So you can, I can't, um, 
infer that like there was any sort of anything deceitful going on. Now, why they didn't uh, notice it, I don't know. Perhaps they had an alternate explanation. It's really hit or miss, but none of this stuff is like DNA profiles matching, right? None of it is. <laughs> there, There is a lot to be desired. I do feel like the if you look at the chart and the way it contradicts itself, um, I do think it kind of backs up what I'm saying about this like strange gunshot wound and then the throat cutting, right? Yeah. The other thing is, uh, so in 1987 when this was published, profiling was a big deal. And I can't ever remember, I, I don't know if it's because of all this hard work they did back then in profiling, if that's why like, the profiles I see on these older cases are always like, well, duh, of course it was like that guy, right? Yeah. Um, I could have done that, like, in 1987 when I was, like, a child. <laughs> I could have told you this is the type of guy doing this kind of thing, Yeah. right? Now, it may not be the same guy, but I would just about guarantee, like, and I could say it's going to be, like, this youngish male who has issues, <laughs> And that kind of sums up <laughs> who did all of this, right? Yeah. Um, and so do you ever, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not trying to put it down because like it was helpful in a lot of situations, but to me, the profiling has just, I mean, it, it has fallen by the wayside. Like you don't hear about it anymore because it has become just so obvious and is it the principles of profiling that brought us to that point? Or like, would we all just inherently know? So weirdly, I mean, if you want like a real answer, you want like a, like an answer that I can give to an audience or you want like a real answer. I mean, whatever you want. I, I don't even know so, if this is even a thing. I'm just saying what I noticed from this article. So, so a lot of people are profiling based. There's a, there's like an automatic confirmation bias with profiling. What we've learned was wrong with profiling was the way that we looked at like racial topography between victims and offenders was wrong. The way that we look like, so if you look at the FBI between the late sixties and the early eighties, any organization that has primarily Caucasian males in their twenties to fifties, is going to write a lot of stuff about Caucasian males from the 20s to 50s. Those cases are solved because they know a lot about Caucasian males in the 20s to 50s. Now, part of that is we're just making shit up. The other part of it is that just happened to be who we're catching. Now, th there's a really weird correlation you could make between this time, which is sort of, this is sort of the, the end of the golden age for serial killers. It's right before Dahmer. You know what I mean? So if you look at it from that perspective. I don't even know, like, what is the golden age of serial killers? Like, it's the rust age. Well, yeah, the <laughs> rust age. I'm sorry. 1968 to about 1992, give or take. That's the time okay. where you, you have, like, Bundy, Dahmer, Green River, BTK. You have all those big name serial killers that everybody puts on all of their podcasts. That's when they were happening. But you have a lot of crimes during that time period that were serial assaults, serial kidnapping, serial 
rapes, serial murders that aren't solved. This well, is a terrible thing to say, but we really just caught the like slow drunk white guys. Man, what do you think that? <laughs> that's really what we did. We caught the slow drunk white guys. That's so we caught them. And if they weren't drinking, they weren't slow, and they weren't white, we didn't catch them. We didn't catch women, really. We didn't catch a lot of people of color. We didn't catch like a lot of people who weren't into substances. We have a lot of unknown serial killers in the same time period that we caught all the slow, drunk white guys. I would have to strongly disagree with that. What do you mean? Um, I'm not saying that. I don't feel like there's a lot of serial killers to begin with. No, no, no. I'm talking about like known serial killers that now we know for sure the DNA matches like in the Connecticut River Valley killings. Like we have unsolved serial killings from this same time period that we can look back on with the same amount of hindsight. And the reason I say that the U.S. has done a ton of cold case work. Now, some of them, they're starting to identify them, which is I was going to say, what? Which is wacky to me that we're identifying, like, like Dr. No has basically been identified at this point. Um, I was going to say, uh, those unknown serial killers are not going to remain unknown. Um, right, right. Unless I, they just fell off the face of the earth. Um, and, you know, they didn't have kids or relatives or anybody. I mean, Right now at this very moment, I would say that it's more likely than not um, that anybody could be identified through DNA. Um, more likely than not. That, so that's not like 100%, but like any profile put in to some extent with, a, you know, I don't know how much work it would take, but it would take, you know, a little bit of work. They would be identified. Right. Well... I think you're I think you're right in a lot of ways. I think so you've probably got three tiers here. You've got the people that will never be caught, and that's because people don't even know their victims are missing. They're at the top tier. Then you've got the second one where you either have DNA from victims or you have a pretty good idea um, that, that crimes are linked for a good reason. But then you've got the third category that you and I always end up looking at. And that is people think they're serial killings, but they're not. Well, and that's just like a bunch of people getting away with stuff. Right. I mean, right. It's a bunch of individuals getting away. with stuff. I'm, I'm having like the, so part of the problem with, um, Bobby Joe long is I feel like there's an eight month period of time in Florida where like there was a free pass given to like, all Everybody the rapists. that committed a sexual assault. Yeah. And it was attributed to him. And, you know, well, why do I say that? Well, like, okay, where are all these cases? Well, it's a bigger period of time than just that. They're saying that, so basically, if you had a sexual assault between the end of 1981 and the end, uh, mid to late 1984, kind of towards the end of the year, but not really, that fell into a 200-mile radius of Tampa, then you weren't really going to be prosecuted. Because they attributed it to Bobby Joe Bobby Long. Long. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so, you know, he um, confessed to uh, Elizabeth Loudenbach, right? Uh, right. Or he admitted to it. 
And he, is it by date found? So in the order of which the victims were, their bodies were discovered, um, she's three in. Right. Okay, that's a weird thing for him to confess to the third one, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not saying he didn't do it. I'm just saying that um, I have questions about this. Um, I I don't feel like an innocent man uh, was put to death at all. But, you know, I do find it very odd that his last victim was um, a teenager that he let go. Yeah, so there's something going on. I mean, I didn't spend all this time staring at these cases and sharing them in this form and certainly not dragging you through it all without, like, some direction to this stuff. I mean, like, people are starting now to cover Samuel Little. Samuel Little just sort of wandered around America doing murder. Yeah, he's crazy. And he almost didn't get caught at all. When we start looking at these serial killer cases, I think the best way for me to sort of wrap up Bobby Joe Long here and 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 my which I'm with you. I think he's a bad dude. I think he's a murderer. He's a, he's undoubtedly a serial killer. But I think he's also probably a weird catch-all for a lot of things here. Especially when the law enforcement bulletin comes out and on at least three cases. So seven out of 10 cases that they presented, which I presented earlier, they believe he did it. I believe he probably did it. Three of the cases. I don't think we have enough information except to say that like he, those people were definitely in cars that had red nylon fibers. Well, but I don't have any idea how many cars had those red nylon fibers. I also don't, and I don't know if you know, I don't know, like, uh, were these, uh, at the time he was taken into custody and having this conversation with law enforcement, was this the entirety of unsolved murders in a certain, you know, geographical area? Uh, not exactly. It sort of looks that way, but no, it's not. There's still unsolved murders down there today. This was, you know they developed that particular victim profile that we talked about. They went back and they were looking for essentially anyone connected to classified ads or to sex work in a couple of specific areas. Cause he, you know, he wasn't super smart about it. He did stick to a, a geographic region where he was just that that's where he was taking people from, you know, is he responsible for all these like loads and loads of sexual assaults, you know? Okay. So if you think about the order of our episodes, which I know you know, but I'm saying this for like people who think I might just be rambling. If I'm telling you about sexual assault initiatives in the news at the beginning of the episode, where we're going back through and we have these piles and warehouses full of backlogged sexual assault kits and sometimes sexual assault kits related to homicides that are untested. And we've got a guy in 94 related to a crime in 97 where we haven't even like put the DNA in anywhere until 2000 something. It's interesting that we end up catching the slow drunk white guys like Bobby Joe Long, who apparently isn't a drunk guy, but whatever. And like what we attach to those guys 
and how they become sort of lore or myth. And I don't have a good perception on, like, Bobby Joe Long is not Ted Bundy, right? Not at all. Um, and I'm not saying he, I mean, he might as well have been, but like he wasn't, he didn't have as much lore as I feel like Ted Bundy had for a variety of reasons, right? And he was caught because of like direct witness, direct reliable witness account, right? Well, just uh, say it like it is. He, he got caught because of a survivor. His survivor was diligent and saved herself and brought him down. Now, to the extent that she was bringing down a serial killer or a massive serial rapist, I have no idea. But she brought down her kidnapper and Correct. The, the man that assaulted her and that, you know, picked her up off her bike while she was on her way home from work. So she brought him down. Now, the rest of it, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't, I'm not going to say that he didn't do it. I would feel much better if they had DNA that matched him. Because I'll be honest with you, I know you said we would go into the different junk sciences at some point as far as um, like evidence goes. But to be honest with you, um, all the evidence they used, um, at least in this chart where they compare it, to me, um, it well, for one thing, it contradicts itself, like we said. The other side of that is like, I really think that it's possible that they could have fibers that were um, similar, but if every single apartment had that carpet or every single, you know, make of car had that same thing, like, I don't know how much that's actually narrowing it down, right? Yeah. I it's Certainly not on the level where you've got DNA that matches. Yeah, it's not the same thing anymore. And so to answer your the other question you asked, which was what happened to profiling? I think DNA took over from profiling and profiling has fallen on the wayside because DNA is much more accurate and profiling was never all that great to begin with. I think it was just, I, I think it was always just to give them some sort of direction. Yeah. That's all they were doing. And like, so, like that's the thing. Like some profiles are highly accurate and highly interesting. And some profiles completely miss the mark. And some profiles are just far enough off that you never close the case. Well, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock in any sort of profile um, at this point. But I'm really glad that um, Lisa McVeigh survived. Yeah, I think that's probably the best thing that we're going to get out of looking at Bobby Joe Long any further. I don't have anything else on him right now. Do you have anything else on what we talked about today? Um, well, I'm I'm pretty much done because I feel like uh, this could go on and on and on, and I would just be spinning my wheels at this point. It's really frustrating, isn't it? I think so, but I feel like it's a good example. I I hope they closed appropriately closed fifty rape cases, like, and this was the guy that did it, and they had enough to close it, and. Uh, the victims got closure, right? And that's the rape cases that they talk about in this uh, FBI bulletin. All right. My gut says that they said they were closed and that they really have no idea who did it. 
And it's just like one more example on one hand of how marginalized the victims of sexual assault were in the 80s, right? Yeah. And then on the other hand, it shows you like how it's great that it's taken so much more seriously now and that we're, you know, actually, you know, the backlogs, which is also another conundrum in my head, because how is it that they collected all this sexual assault evidence, but yet so many uh, victims were marginalized, right? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. You can see how far we've come with it. Um, I do think they were tooting their own horn, though, and I don't think that 50 rape cases were solved. I mean, this guy was a bad dude. He had his issues, right? He had a lot of trouble keeping his life even moving, right? Yeah. (laughs) And so it seems really odd to me that it would have gone the way that it did, but, you know— if it did, and all of this is accurate information, kudos to them. I'm glad they got him off the street. You know, he wouldn't have stopped until he was caught. I think that's one of the taglines. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm convinced by Lisa McVeigh's story that, you know, he, it wasn't that he would, this innocent man was put in jail and, you know, he was finally put to death like all those years later. And that was another thing. I don't think we got to it, but about how long it took. Maybe it did. Maybe we did cover it, Um, how long it took to put him to death, but he finally was put to death. And, you know, so I feel like he got what he deserved, but it's also like this interesting perspective of like, well, did everybody involved get justice? Yeah. You know, it's wild. Have you ever looked at the court documents in this case? And I'm not bringing them all up today. I'm just asking if you ever looked at them. I did. Well, yeah. I mean, I've looked at some, yeah. He's had like so for a period of years he had stuff that was overturned and reinstated and he got new hearings on different sentencing. He got stuff thrown out. I mean, like all along the way, like he had the it, it's a wild ride. Cause I had wondered, uh, one of the things we talked about earlier, when you say something like, Did everybody get justice? Um, you know, I don't I, as much as I don't like him, I don't want a serial rapist to be declared a serial murderer or vice versa. And then like, how about you just don't want a bunch of people getting away with raping people because it was like under a, you know, there you go. together you go. under a serial, because for every single case that gets attributed to one of these guys that didn't do it, somebody that did it is walking free. Exactly. At least th- for that case. Right. Right. And that's like always been one of my, so, you know, I had somebody ask me, uh, I don't know, one of the social medias early on when I first started doing this, I think it was Twitter or Instagram. Why did, like, why did I think these things, you know, it's not cool to think there's a, like, okay, say you've got a serial killer. He's accused of 12 murders. He committed three of them. He did not commit nine. So you put this guy away and say, that guy is a serial killer. He killed three people. But then you've got nine guys walking around out here because Otis Tool can't keep his mouth shut. That's weird to me. Those nine guys are more dangerous than that one guy. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I feel like um, every single one of the cases that were attributed to him, if he did it, fine. But if not, who did it? Because it matters, right? It definitely matters. We can't just catch the slow white drunk guys and put them in prison and let the other ones go. 
Do you really see it that way? The slow drum. That's who we caught. That's literally who we caught. And like, I I know, like, I read the profiles and I read like the backstory, and they're like, he says he doesn't drink. I'm like, that guy has been shaking the entire confession, and I don't think it's nerves. I think he just hasn't had a drink in days, and he used to like sit there and drink a handle to go do this shit. I def, I, I do, and like, I would actually qualify that by saying I will go as far to say that it is slow, drunk white guys who think they can drive that can't. Yeah, the, the driving is always a downfall. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. He now Bobby J. Long is walking out of a movie theater. We don't know so. how drunk he might have been. <laughs> 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 well, you know, it came up with Bundy because Bundy was like every single time he got caught, he was driving a stolen vehicle badly, right? Yeah, every single time. And um, it, I noticed that and I'm like, wow, if he had just like not been driving these vehicles, like he wouldn't have been caught, which is not necessarily a good thing. But then I started noticing like a lot of um, dudes get caught driving, like a lot of bad dudes. Um, And the reason is they're driving badly. So, you know, I guess it's just too much for them to drive well. I I, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad they were caught, so it doesn't really matter. But I, I, I thought, what are the odds that this guy can do all this terrible stuff that he did to all of these women and, like, nobody notices? But, like, you know, get in a stolen car and drive slowly and weave. You're going down, buddy. So uh, you want to know the top ten movies that were uh, in the theater? When? In 1987? No, 1984, the day he got arrested. So... <laughs> I wanted to find the one that he was watching, but I couldn't find like anybody. Oh, yeah, 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 because he walked out of the movie theater. Okay. Yeah, he walks out of the movie theater. So the number one movie was Missing in Action. Um, you may not <laughs> – do you know what I'm talking about? No, not really. <laughs> so so it's a, like it's um, uh, Chuck Norris. My dad used to watch these movies. Like, uh-huh. like Chuck, it's a Chuck Norris movie. Oh, God, You Devil, which is um, George Burns. Uh, my absolute favorite horror movie ever, Night of the Comet, was number three that week. Uh, number four in the theater was The Terminator. Um, there's a movie called Just the Way You Are that was number five. And that, which, do you know that one? No, I don't know any of these movies. Oh, okay. I, I, I didn't know. I was just sort 1984, of. 1984, I mean, I was a kid, a very young kid. Uh, Just the way you are is a really cool uh, movie about with has Christy McNichol had a cool story. Nightmare on Elm Street was number uh, six. I do know that one. Yep, Places in the Heart was um, on there. Uh, Amadeus was number eight, and No Small Affair. And number ten was a soldier story. But they all like also in theater that week. This was wild for me. Purple Rain, Karate Kid, Ghostbusters, Body Double. Uh, uh, 
all these movies, uh, Adventures of uh, Buckaroo Banzai, all these movies were playing in different theaters all the same week that this guy got arrested. I thought it was crazy. How did he find him in the movie theater? They were watching they him, I they, guess? They, they were surveilling him. Once they, once they did the traffic stop on him, they were surveilling him. And they just followed him around. And they used a helicopter. The helicopter would go overhead. So that they didn't have, like, they could pick them back up. They were basically running four man surveillance, but one aerial vehicle, so that, like, the other three weren't caught. That's a pretty, pretty good idea, actually. Well, you know, what's interesting is, and, and I'll take it for what it's worth, because this was a long time ago, and there's a lot of, like, sort of randomness in the information you can find. Um, but initially, uh, just like I thought, initially they were like, Oh, it doesn't really make sense that this would be that guy, right? Yeah. In fact, I don't even think they linked all the murders together initially, um, possibly because of the difference in um, the way some of them were killed. I would say more than I, – I feel pretty strongly. Um, I think his victim count is lower. I think that I, well, I can say like, just from my research, which like I said, is probably done because I, I just, I can't imagine why I would spend my wills on this. Um, I would say um, I am as close to a hundred percent positive without actually like being able to prove it as I could be that Michelle Sims and Chanel Williams are not his victims. Yeah, the the hair evidence gets weirder when you start drilling down on them. Um, there, there are even more questions than just theirs, but those are sort of the ones where it's the most obvious that if you ran the DNA, I don't think they would – I don't think the DNA would match him. I'm not well, saying I, he definitely didn't do it, but I'm saying there's a high likelihood that he didn't do it. Right. And um, I have a tendency to agree with that. Um, you've also got a situation where, um, uh, if you notice, there's a wide variety of the length of time between the date uh, the victims went missing and the date that their bodies were found, ranging from, you know, um, found right away to like one months day and months and months. To like yeah. months. And that's weird. Well, um, some of it's because allegedly he told them where a couple of the bodies were. If you notice, like, if you look at that, like, yeah, if you but look, that gets into like that gets into some other territory.
Don't 